Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Today, as he said, we're starting the series called Relationship Above Differences, Frequently Asked Tough Questions. And in this series, we're going to deal with uh, what I think and what many of you gave feedback on are the toughest, most contentious, difficult, social philosophical, cultural questions that all of us face, really, frankly, uh, almost on a daily basis in our lives. And, uh, and uh, there's going to be, in this series, three foundational messages. One is today, so good you're here. Uh, messages that I think are really uh, relevant and required if you're going to really fully grasp the rest of the series. I mean, you can, you'll, you'll get stuff out of it, but this Sunday and next Sunday are two of those messages. Next Sunday, we're going to be dealing with the Bible and the role of women, which women's rights and that whole issue and how the church is related to it is still a topic that comes up on a regular basis and is a legitimate topic on its own. But within that, why I want that to be a foundational message is we're going to actually wrestle with understanding how we can be really biblically faithful and answer the question, the big cultural question. When is something a cultural command and when is it an absolute biblical command for all of life for all of time. And we're going to deal with that question in a really honest, level-headed way next way, next week. There's other topics up there too, but another date that I want you to put on your calendar, and actually, because I asked you to bring your Wi-Fi stuff today, I hope you have your calendar with you. Put 1020 on the, on your calendar as a date you don't want to miss. I mean, not just don't miss from the audio podcast. I really think you want to be here that Sunday. We're going to talk about some of the very core Christian beliefs of all time, and we're going to present them in a way that I think very few of you will have heard presented. It's going to be really, um, I think it's going to be really impacting. I think it's going to be one of the most important messages we do. And here's the reason why I don't want you to miss that day. A significant portion of that day is going to be very visual. And uh, while we have video equipment and stuff, we're not currently set up to do video podcasts and taking the time to do that. So if you just listen to the audio podcast that day, you're going to miss a significant portion of the impact because it's going to be such a visual lesson that day. So, uh, And that, that, above all else in this message, I think is one of the most pivotal messages to help us deal with the really, really, really difficult stuff. In, an, in, a, in a really kind, gracious, and clear way. So put that on your calendar for October 20th, if you can. And we've got lots of other topics up there that we're going to also look at. But let me unpack the series title for a moment. Relationship Above Differences. Relationship. You know, I, I don't know what your experience is, but my experience is a lot of times when the topics that we're going to address are dealt with in this type of a setting, it ends up being this type of thing that puts up uh, these cold, concrete walls of division in relationship. They end up creating barriers. They end up creating pain and sorrow and distance between people in that process. And and you may think I'm re- idealistic to think that we can address these topics in any different way, and yes, I am. And I'm that way for one very specific reason, because I want to relentlessly pursue being a people who have relationship, not just with those people that we agree, but with the people who we don't agree with, that we have kind, gracious, really healthy relationships. Why? Well, I think it's simply this. It's because that's who Jesus is. Above all else, that's the essence of the good news of Jesus. Jesus came from heaven to us when we weren't looking for Him, 
when we weren't necessarily even wanting to follow his ways, when we had big differences with him and chose to pursue us with a ferocious kindness and love that we've never experienced before. That's the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Not do we think right, do we have everything down perfectly. The very essence of actually being a follower of Jesus is our ability to be like Jesus and show that same kind of confident, gracious, pursuing love, kindness towards people who don't agree with us, who may even be our enemies in their mind towards us. So really, for me, it comes down to unless we can actually practice this kind of pursuit, this kind of determined, committed, loyal love towards other people who disagree with us, unless we can do that, our faith is a sham if we can't do it. And we're no better than the cold-hearted Pharisees that Jesus spent most of his time confronting if we can't have those kinds of relationships in our lives with other people. So relationship. Friendship, loyalty, graciousness, kindness, love, above, greater priority, a greater ideal, above the differences, being faithful to one another and to church, even when and especially when we struggle and don't agree with one another, being faithful to those relationships, and also differences. I don't expect all of us to agree when we talk about these things. In fact, there are areas of what we'll talk about that I think it would be really probably unhealthy if we all agreed on this stuff. So I don't expect us to come to agreement. We're not ramming down our throats some sort of one way of thinking in this process, okay? You know, we love the word grace, don't we? We love the word grace. But isn't the key part of grace really the action of God loving us even when we disagree even when we fail. And if we want to be followers of Jesus, that's the core part of our growth. That's the essence of what we need to be focused on. If we're going to really be Christians, we need to love people in the messiness of grace. Will you join me for this series in that heart ideal? And would you just say your own version of the prayer I'm about to pray as we uh, begin? Lord, we just ask that you would come to us and that with all this difficult stuff, that You would give us hope that we can be the most kind and gracious people and faithful followers of You all in one package. That You can help us wrestle through the troublesomeness of this, the, the personal pain of some of the topics we'll deal with. That You can help us learn to experience Your grace and give Your grace to one another and really, really live like You in this process. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, uh, we're going to talk about one of the fundamental questions that all of us will have to wrestle with in every message we deal with throughout this process. And it's actually two really core questions. The first question is, what does the Bible have to say about the social issues that could inform us in a healthy way to respond, right? And the second question is really this, is the Bible reliable? Is it a trustworthy representation of God and the healthiest way to live or not? I mean, how reliable is the Bible? Is, to take it further, how reliable is the Bible? Is it the, is it the pure words of God or is it just the impure attempts of imperfect mankind to try to put into voice 
what God is like and what He requires. And we'll, we'll deal with questions on a regular basis, whether we deal with it explicitly. Our thoughts will betray these questions in us. Is the Bible we have today accurate to what was originally written? Is it, is it reliably faithful? Is it something that we can trust in all of these processes? I mean, because, I mean, the Bible, it's been over 2,000 years or more since the events it describes. Can we really trust it? And the, in the theological world, and the church world, what this is called is the debate over inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Really, just let's put it simple. It's really the debate over, is this a trustworthy book, the Bible, that we can rely on to guide our lives in an effective way? Let's wrestle with these questions from a, a very practical standpoint. First, let's start with just pure logic, okay? So if... We've been a Christian for a while. If you're here and you've been a Christian for a while, you probably believe that Jesus is God and Jesus is the one and only God. And if you believe that, you also believe that He created everything that exists. He created the galaxies. He created the mountains. He created the atom. He created the protons, electrons. He created everything. And the Bible tells us that God is a God who can tell us exactly how many hairs we have on our head. He knows everything about us that well. Some of you, you have the average number of hairs on your head. I looked it up. It's 150,000. There's a couple of you. I'm looking around. You probably had about 3,000 this morning before you took a shower, and now you're 25 less. So you're in trouble, right? But if God knows that about us, and the Bible also says He knows our thoughts and our intentions before we speak, He knows our motives of our heart better than we know them then if that's the God that we believe is our God that we follow, how is it possible to doubt that He can accurately communicate through imperfect people in a fully true, fully reliable manner? Now, you don't have to even have to be sold on Jesus and, and God as a one God. You know, even if you're just pursuing God, whatever that means to you, you can then, if your God is a God who cannot communicate reliably, then I, 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 have to, I have to ask the question, what kind of a God is that? I mean, if you have a God who can't ensure that what he, who He is and what He requires of us is accurately communicated and that the copying of it over years is accurately transmitted, transmitted so we know how to successfully know Him and follow Him, then either that God is really small and really weak, he's really not worth following. Or worse, that God is capricious and mean. He's toying with us with partial truths, keeping us from the truth, right? I mean, logic itself pushes us to wrestle with our commitment to the Bible as being reliable or not. But second, the Bible itself tells us that, that Scripture is completely reliable. The Bible teaches us that God cannot lie. It teaches us His words are true. It teaches us that they're accurate and pure. In Isaiah 55, it says this. It says, My word shall accomplish that for which I purpose. And understand the context that God is speaking that in. God is speaking that word, that His word is sure and true and can accomplish what He sets it forth to do in the context of a people who are utterly in chaos from sin and rebellion against Him, wanting nothing to do with Him. And even in that context, He says it's that sure. God's words are enduring and relevant throughout all history. 
Jesus says that. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And Paul talks about Scripture. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And when he says God-breathed, what he's trying to communicate there is that God is the primary influence controlling what happens on the paper and the message that's coming through. So second, the Bible tells us itself that Scripture is fully reliable. But third, if we want more evidence, we can look at the writings that, that made it into the Bible and the writings that didn't. There was a very, very clear high standard followed for the things that made it in the Bible and the things that didn't. Uh, there were things like uh, requirements of the author having to be an eyewitness or having to be a demonstrated prophet or apostle of God. There was uh, consistency that had to be in place between what this new book that was added to the Bible and the rest of what was already known to be part of the Bible. There was an evidence of power that had to be present, both in terms of an evidence of God's power in the author, but also evidence in the power of the lives of the people who read it and decided to do what it said and follow, that it really works in our lives and brings good health and joy. And it had to be something that was widely acknowledged by followers of Christ, not just a few. It was very widely acknowledged. There were very strict, difficult guidelines for what made it in our Bible. And yet the interesting thing when you study history is that many of the things that are in our Bible made it there very quickly. You look at uh, Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua is the immediate successor to Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And in Joshua's time, those first five books were already fully received as being Scripture as opposed to other things that may have been written that weren't. You look at the New Testament even. You look at the four Gospels, the, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus on earth. And you look at those, and those were 100% fully accepted across the board in less than 100 years. And in fact, if you look back at Paul's writings, Paul often quotes some of those stories and some of the incidences from Jesus' life that are recorded in those eyewitness accounts, those gospels that we have. And either Paul heard those stories directly or more than likely in many of those instances, Paul, less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, was reading those copies that were beginning to circulate of what everybody understood to be Scripture. So it's interesting, those very, very high guidelines, but very clear, very quickly in most instances, what stood apart and what was clearly not part of the Bible. There was a strict refrigerator rule, if you want to call it that, where, you know, the refrigerator rule, you know that rule, if in doubt, throw it out. If, if the smell isn't quite 100% positive, good, you know, don't eat it. Anybody ever violate that rule and pay the price? I'm going to ask Jeremy if he did because he went home this morning. He was supposed to be here and he was sick and not feeling good. It wasn't easy for something to become in the part of the Bible. So what is included met a very high standard. But fourth, the evidence also shows us that the Bible has been extremely reliably preserved for us today. And what's that evidence, you might say? Because the reality is it's been between 1,900 years and 3,500 years since the original texts were written of the books of the Bible. Well, first, the evidence is just simply, simply logical. The majority of people who copied the Bible believed it was Scripture. It was God's words. 
And they approach that task with a sense of awe and fear of not wanting to add to it and not wanting to take away with it. But we can also look beyond that. We can look at some of the historical writings that they found that actually talk about the rules that the copiers of the Bible followed. And you see amazing rigidity and accuracy and carefulness. They, 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 uh, in many of the letters, the, the copying for standards that they had, you, ha- you could only have a certain number of letters in a line. And if, if any line ever had too many characters, they threw it out. There were very, very strict rules using like hairs and other things to measure of how close and how far away letters could be. And if they violated those rules, they threw the manuscript out. And in fact, when the manuscript was done being completed, they triple-checked, quadruple-checked it. And the way they actually checked it according to the rules that we've been able to find written in history is that they actually counted all the words, but they didn't stop by counting the words. They counted all the letters. It would be like us today copying a manuscript and saying, I'm going to count all the words, and I'm going to count how many A's, how many E's, how many I's, how many M's are in this document. And if None of, if any of those counts don't match with the original, we throw it away and we start over. It wasn't like editing. They threw it away and started over in those processes. And it's also the most reliably preserved ancient text in all of history. It's not even close. Prior to the 1950s, the oldest manuscript we had of the Old Testament dated to just before 1,000 years after Christ. In the 1950s, there was this find in archaeology called the Dead Sea Scrolls, thousands and thousands of manuscripts and many, many full copies of books of the Old Testament that were all dated to the time of Christ to 300 years before Christ. And they compared those manuscripts that are 1,000 to 1,300 years earlier than the previous oldest between that one and they were, it was nearly a perfect match between the two. Talk about reliability. And then you go on to the New Testament. The New Testament is, is amazing. The earliest fragment of the New Testament is from around 90 A.D. And the earliest full manuscript of the entire New Testament in one piece is from 350 A.D. Now look at this at some of the other major works of history, which, interestingly enough, in academic circles, most of these are not even questioned as to authenticity. You've got things like uh, Tacitus's Roman history, written around A.D. 100. And the earliest copy we have is over a 1,000 years later. And there's only 20 copies. But when you look at the New Testament, 80, 40 to 100, our earliest copies are 90 and 350, less than 300 years' time span between the originals and the best copies we have exhibited. And we have 5,000-plus Greek manuscripts, which is the original language that it was written in, to compare from every single century. We have dozens of manuscripts from 90 A.D. on up. We have 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and we have 9,300 other manuscripts like the Coptic language and other things like that to compare. There is absolutely no comparison as to the reliability and the preservation of the Bible that we have today. In fact, uh, scientific textual criticism has analyzed the Bible repeatedly and the conclusions have been upwards of 98% of every word you have in the Bible, they are confident is from the original manuscript because of the way they've analyzed the manuscripts over time. And what they've also concluded is the less than 2% that is not 
for sure, where they question it, it may be reliable, but they're not sure, is almost solely made up of uh, grammatical things that don't change the meaning of the text, and none of it changes the meaning of the message of the Bible, the stuff that's unsure. The Bible is by far, without question, the most reliably preserved manuscript in all of history, especially from ancient times. Now, I think that sometimes our problems with inerrancy actually come down to really two other things. One is the fact that sometimes we misunderstand what inerrancy means and doesn't mean. And sometimes it's a personal thing. Let's, let's, let's talk about inerrancy first. Uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem, uh, read by almost everybody who studies to be a minister, writes systematic theology, affirms inerrancy of Scripture this way. And he says, Scripture in the original manuscripts, inerrancy of Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Okay? Now, what this means is it's not saying that, that, that it tells us everything that ever happened about that situation. It doesn't tell us that it tells us everything about even a single circumstance. But what it says is everything that is shared is true. And one of the most common objections that we have that among scholars and, and, and common uh, readers of the Bible alike is the questioning of inerrancy based upon the numbers in the Bible. That's the number one thing that comes up when people say, oh, I'm not sure this is really true and error-free. Because the numbers don't always seem to add up at times. But let's, let's illustrate that in this way. And the answer to that in a more formal sense is an iner inerrancy allows for ordinary language and flexibility and what level of precision is needed for something to be true based upon the circumstance and the culture. Now, that's kind of a heady way of saying what I'm going to say very practically next. Practically what that means is you could stand here today and tell me that 3,000 people died on 9-11. And you would not be telling me anything that anybody of any, any one of us would consider to be untrue, right? But I could also ask somebody else and they would say 2,753 died on 9-11. But they would be saying that number based upon the major disaster site which everybody remembers in New York City and not the whole impact of every site, Right? And the actual numbers of people that died on that day were 2,996 people. But then there's also the people who, when they talk about who died on 9-11, talk about all the people who have died in the weeks and the months and the years after that because of the toxic smoke and ash. All of those numbers we could talk about, and we would all look at each other and say, there's no untruth intended in that process, right? Think of it this way. I still do it, but I've largely, I've, I've completely given up on my ability to be accurate in doing this. I used to always try to walk out of service and say, how many people were in this service by just looking at you from this vantage point? And I realized that I could be 20% off in any direction on any given Sunday. But if I come out of the service and you say, how many people were here today? And I say, how many I think were here? And I just say it as a number. Does that make it untrue if it's not precise because I haven't waited till Monday to get the actual count? Right? And that even gets more difficult for us. For instance, let's imagine that you decided to go to Washington, D.C. for a, a major rally on the National Mall. And you come home and you talk to your friend. And you say to your friend, they say, well, how many people are there? And you go, well, there, there had to be a million people there. There were a million people. It was just packed. There were a million people there. And you find out three days later that the park estimate is actually 250,000. Were you lying when you said that? One million? 
And let me ask this question. Does that 1 million versus 250,000 really change the meaning of that event and the political impact it had? Because a lot of times it doesn't. We've seen demonstrations of a couple, a couple thousand people that have influenced politics, right? Does it really change the meaning of the text in any way or the intent of it? And that's what we mean by, you know, it needs to fit the preciseness of the culture and of the situation, and the language can be ordinary language and doesn't always have to be precise in everything. And we're not lying. But let's get even more, let's get even more personal in this application. I think a lot of our trouble with inerrancy comes down to two things. The first of which is I think it comes down to we have difficulty understanding the Bible. And sometimes we think because it's so foreign to us and we really have a difficult time understanding parts of it that we just kind of say it's not accurate, it's errant. But the reality is if we just want to think about it on a big picture, if we're serving an infinite, all-knowing God, we should expect this text to be something that is troublesome to us, that challenges our thinking, that is challenges our emotions, that is even unsettling to us, that's something that we can search our entire lives and always feel like there's areas of it that we don't understand, right? I mean, isn't that true in that process? And I think actually a lot of times for us further that, that, uh, that we struggle with the inerrancy of Scripture for an even more personal reason. And that's because if we believe the text of the Bible is reliable, a trustworthy source of representing God and what is best and pure and right and going to bring us the most happiness and joy and peace in life, then it makes a demand on us. It makes a demand that we believe this is authoritative in all of life. That this is the number one place we need to go to shape our beliefs, how we live, how we think, and how we feel. Now, I don't expect, even from what we've talked about today, if you came in here today with questions, I don't expect to have convinced you today. But if you don't yet accept the reliability of the Bible, if you're still not convinced, and that's, that's fine, I, I want to propose two core questions I think you need to deal with. First is a question you may not be expecting. The first question you really need to deal with, is God real and knowable? If God is not knowable, then God is, in, at least in my mind, He's this distant, uncaring kind of capricious, mean person that I don't really want to know. I don't really want to follow. But if you believe that God is knowable, but you're still wondering whether it's really Jesus and whether the Bible is reliable, then the direction of your seeking is not so much to seek the answers to your questions as it is to seek Him. If knowing Him is the first and greatest priority, then forget your questions. Just find out, is He real? Can I know Him? Can I experience Him? And then once you begin to experience His presence, once you begin to personally know He's real, just start praying the prayer. God, if your Bible, if this Bible you've supposedly given us is really true and reliable, would you just show that to me? And the way you'll discover it's reliable is not just to read it, but to do it. Because the Bible isn't just an abstract moral code. It's about leading us to relationship. And relationship is a little bit like in marriage. You know, you learn great communication skills, but if you go home and you never use them, 
and you, then you start going around saying, well, they don't work. That doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, you know that the communication skills are effective when you actually use them in your marriage and you experience the blessing. So if you're going to read the Bible and to see whether it's even reliable and you doubt that still, then do what you believe is right and see if it works. See if, it, see if by doing this and letting it shape your thinking and belief, it actually brings the peace, the joy, the strength to get through difficult times, the organizing thoughts that help you face life well. But eventually all of us are faced with and must settle this one second question, which is the Bible reliable? Because the problem is, if you don't believe the Bible is perfectly reliable and authoritative to guide every aspect of your life, and if you believe that God's not capable of ensuring that the original manuscripts come to us today in a trustworthy fashion, then you're naturally going to wonder if you can trust anything about God. I mean, if you can't trust the Bible to be real, then how are you going to ever trust what you think He might be telling you personally to be real and true and right? The reality is we really can't trust anything. And the reality is if we don't believe the Bible is reliable, then our faith and our religion are eventually made up of what we deem is right. And it really has very little to do with God. And that's really the problem where we face in American Christianity today. American Christianity, we tend to approach, and I've been guilty of this, we tend to approach the Bible and faith like we do shopping. We love options, right? We go, to the, we go to Easton and there's a clothing store for the professional look. There's another one for the sexy look. There's another one for chic and there's another one for artsy and another one for hipster and there's one for children, one for old and one for middle age. I mean, you've got every choice you ever want. We go to the drugstore, right? We want, uh, we want a myriad, there's a myriad of cold medicines. We can decide whether we want the one with the cough suppressant or the decongestant or whether we want the one with the antihistamine or the expectorant. We can, we can debate whether we want cherry, peppermint or grape and we can even debate whether we want the really high alcohol content, which a lot of us really like in our cold medicine to put us out, or whether we want the non-drowsy stuff, right? We even go to the store and there's like a bazillion brands of Kleenex for our picky little schnozzes to be able to pick whatever color and softness and texture and look and size we want to pick our noses with, right? I mean, we go to the extremes in wanting to pick and choose. But when we approach our faith like that, What we often say to ourselves is, I I don't really care what the Bible says on this topic because compassion to me looks like this. So that's what I'm going to do. And I understand why we say that kind of thing. I mean, I really understand. When, with all the history of the Bible being used as a club, as a sledgehammer to impose right and wrong and in and out and the way that's damaged people over the years, I understand why we would choose that kind of a statement. But shouldn't we let God, who is love, define for us what compassion looks like rather than us defining it? rather than politicians or talk show hosts defining it or self-help gurus or, 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 or rather than letting our sometimes untrustworthy feelings define it. You see, when we pick and choose in the Bible, what we're really saying to God and about life is two things. We're saying, God, you're so small and you're so weak that I can't trust you to communicate what really is best, what really is healthiest and most loving in life. 
And it doesn't matter. And the second thing we often say when we're really saying to God with this, it doesn't matter that something has been believed and practiced by the kindest of Christians and by the best and the kindest of the, of the great leaders throughout Christian history for the last 2,000 years. If it doesn't fit what I want, if it doesn't feel right to me, then I'm going to ignore it or I'm going to reframe it and do it a different way, right? And we end up with the kind of tolerance our culture has which is a tolerance that says if, if as long as I don't disagree with what you believe is right and wrong, then I'm tolerant. Which ultimately leads us to, in our society, and also continues to lead us to the point where whoever has the more strict moral standard is automatically intolerant. And where that's going to lead our culture, and we see it all over, is it's leading our culture to be a society of families and individuals and where we see marriages and friendships breaking apart in pain because we have become a society that lives to the lowest common denominator in order to try to be merciful, kind, and tolerant. But to be loving like Jesus is to learn to have the courage to actively love in the midst of and across differences. We can't avoid disagreements, but we have to approach them with the same kind of kindness, the same kind of empowering generosity that Jesus demonstrated to us on earth. In this series, we're going to do our best to honestly deal with and understand what the Bible teaches in terms of guidelines to help us make decisions to what is really healthy, what really is the moral healthiness that He wants to bring a blessing in our life for. But we're also going to spend a whole lot more time on the relational side of that, of how do we love, how do we respond in relationship to people who do not think like us. So again, maybe you don't believe that the Bible is reliable as I've described it, but I'm inviting you today to continue on with us through this series and to at least, at least allow yourself to get in the shoes of examining what we talk about and what the Bible has to say from the side of the, that God is trying to reliably help us understand through His teachings in the Bible what brings greater freedom, what brings greater wholeness, what brings greater joy and greater thriving to our lives and the life of our community. So we're going to open for questions uh, now on this uh, topic. And anybody who didn't have a texting machine of some sort, uh, who has like a paper question, just uh, finish writing it, raise it up, and somebody will come grab it and take it back to Dusty. Dusty, do we have any questions? We do, and I'm going to start you off with an easy one. You ready? Can the slide comparing historical documents and dates of the earliest copies be made available on the church website or another easily accessible source? Yes, um, we can make that available either on the website or I'll go back. Uh, there's a number of, it's commonly known language, uh, commonly known stuff, and there's a bunch of websites that cite the same stuff. So I'll either try to put a link or put that directly on this website, yes. Very good. How much did the politics at the time, example Constantine, also impact which books made it into the Bible? Uh, well, by the time of Constantine, the canon was pretty well set, so that's too late in that process. But uh, the politics really didn't affect what was in the Bible, uh, at least not in the New Testament, because the New Testament, the, the the New Testament, and the Christianity at that time was a marginalized; it wasn't a mainstream thing. So it was it was not even part of the political structure to make decisions for what was included in the Bible. 
The next one kind of piggybacks from a uh, question we had in the last service. It says, in my Bible, there are often stories with notes that say the story uh, wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. An yes. example is uh, a woman caught in adultery, uh, otherwise known as the Paracope Adultery. Yep. Uh, so that story seems to be added much later. How can we overlook editions like this? The reason some of those are kept is because there is a preponderance of evidence of some of the later manuscripts having them in, and they were historically in our Bibles, and so rather than remove them, they've left them out. But with the, with the discovery of a whole lot more manuscripts of earlier dating in the past century because of archaeological finds, they're not in the earliest. So rather than remove them from what had always been the Bible for most of the last 2,000 years, they've just made notes. That's where we start to get to that less than 2% that they're unsure of, okay? So, uh, but none of those settings, like even the section at the end of Mark uh, that says that, none of those, set, none of those uh, places provide any theology that's not also elsewhere. And so that's also part of the reason they've left them in, because it is consistent with everything else that was stated in the Bible. There's no harm to it being there. Does that make sense? All right. The Gospels often contradict each other. In parallel versions of the Bible, this is very visible. How do we, how do we respond to people who point out these contradictions? Um, it's, yes, there's a lot of discussion about contradictions. Um, the contradictions, uh, I, I'm not sure I agree that there are a lot of contradictions. When you actually look at them from uh, comparing the different audiences they were written, some of the contradictions come because they use different terminology because they're writing to a Greek audience or a Jewish audience. And um, I think that some of the contradictions that you also see are rather non-substantive and, and would be reflective of um, people remembering different things in different ways. So it's not that the uh, it's not really that there are contradictions. It's that, that when Peter saw this, he remembers this, and well, maybe so. Maybe he got two and three out of order, and John got two and three in order. But it doesn't. It's not a contradiction of any substance in terms of uh, removing reliability of an eyewitness account. It's just really reflective of some of the differences. And some of those times when you actually see differences like that, it's actually strategic on the part of the author trying to point out one aspect of that experience because that author is making a slightly different emphasis and a slightly different point of what Jesus was communicating in that than the other author was making. Does that make sense on that? Does studying things like the Gospel of Mary or Thomas have any value? Um, it depends on how you define value. If you're really trying to find out who uh, Jesus is and follow him, no. If you're trying to find out and study some of the uh, early heresies that emerged in the church and understand how they could be emerging today, then yeah, you might want to read some of that stuff. But the reason the Gospel of Thomas and uh, Mary in particular did not make the text of the Bible is going back to some of those very core reasons we talked about earlier. Uh, there was doubt of authorship and of genuineness of authorship. There was uh, lack of consistency between that and the worldview of, the, of Jesus and the church because those Gospels both uh, actually infuse uh, Greek mythology and Greek thinking into the Gospels. And so uh, that's the reason there was a very clear distinction. They didn't even reflect the core truth 
of uh, the rest of the Bible in those settings. But if you want to go back and, and, and study some of the early heresies and why they came about, those might be interesting readings to go look at. So, Very good. Why are there so many versions of the Bible, NIV, ESV, etc.? Which one are we supposed to read? Okay, so this is, this is a really interesting one because people a lot, a lot of times get hung up on this. There are two different basic thoughts and translation of the Bible. There is one approach that does word-for-word translation, and there is another approach that does thought-for-thought translation. And the difference basically ends up being, for instance, the New American Standard Bible is a Bible I love to read when I'm doing in-depth study because for me, having enough exposure to Greek and Hebrew in the back, background, I can read that in a word-for-word fashion and begin to catch some of, the, some of the nuances of the original language that are captured in it. But the NASB is also a, an 11th grade plus level reading level. It's not, I mean, when you do word-for-word, grammatically it becomes really difficult to understand sometimes. So a lot of people translate thought for thought. So you've got things like the NIV uh, that is a thought for thought. You've got the ESV, which is kind of a thought for thought, leaning a little bit towards word for word. You've got to kind of have a continuum in the philosophy of translation there. And so the NIV is a thought for thought translation that ends up being a fifth grade reading level and a lot easier to understand a lot of times, especially because um, the original language in, uh, in Hebrew and Greek is a very picture-oriented language. It's, I said this in the first service. I remember uh, in the early 90s doing a hospital visit. Uh, and I was at the hospital visiting Grant Moore and his wife who was going into major surgery. And Grant was, he was like 75. He was sitting over in the corner. And I'm sitting here trying to have this serious conversation and pray with his wife. And he's sitting over in the corner giggling, just laughing and reading a book. And I look at Grant and I go, what are you reading? Are you reading the comics? And he held it up. He says, no, I'm reading the French dictionary. Because the French dictionary is also one of those picture languages. There's a lot of things that aren't communicated like we would think in a normal word. It's, it's this word that is this entire picture. And sometimes those pictures um, need a little bit of translation because they also reflect the habits of that ancient culture. So that's the reason sometimes word for word can be a little more difficult to understand some of those pictures, whereas a thought for thought makes sense for those types of translations and you got everything in between. So which ones would I recommend? Um, I would actually recommend that you read uh, either the NIV 84, which is hard to get online now anymore, or the ESV, the English Standard Version. They're both really easy to read, uh, excellent, trans- excellent translations. If you really die hard into study and you understand a little bit of Greek and Hebrew, maybe do the NASB or just do that as a, a, a diet otherwise. I, I have, uh, I'm not going to assert an opinion on the current version of the NIV. I haven't had enough time to study that one. I know there's evangelical scholars who are crying foul that they left behind uh, some faithfulness to biblical translation in the latest version. I don't know if that's true or not. It's probably still a great translation, but I would recommend those. What I would not recommend as your main diet is things like the message. Uh, The message is not a translation. It is a paraphrase, and there's a difference. A paraphrase is that author's attempt to tell you what he thinks the meaning of the text is. Now, it can be great reading as a supplemental reading, because it's kind of like reading a commentary in a sense, right? But I wouldn't make that your main diet of reading the Bible to try to understand it because it's really just this author's opinion of what the text says in the way they wrote it. Okay? Any other questions? Yes. I think some of the questions that surround Scripture are present because of the supernatural events that occur Mm -hmm. throughout it. 
how can we view these stories without scrutiny when our worldview tells us these things didn't happen? Yeah, well, that's one of the worldview things we have to settle. Is God capable of doing the supernatural today? And that's really the question. If you say no, then you're going to struggle and you're going to come at the interpretation of the Bible from the standpoint that all these things have to be metaphorical or the Bible has to be untrue. And that's one common translation or common interpretation you see of the Bible. But if you settle the fact that God is supernatural and can do miracles, then you look at him as face value, as someone's expression and experience of God coming to them powerfully in that process. And that really is something you can't resolve between the two. You've got to decide where you're going to be. Is God real? Is he knowable? Is he powerful? Uh, why is there a difference between Bibles for Catholics and Protestants? Uh, another question added things like additional books like Tobit. Um, uh, I'm going to uh, plead that I wish Jeremy were up here right now because I know he studied that more than I have. And I have not studied exact differences and the reasons for those differences um, a lot of the, I do know that a lot of the books that made it into the Catholic Bible were a little bit later in adoption that we don't have in the Protestant Bible typically. And, uh, and in that instance, uh, there are debates as to political influences to having some of those in the Bible, but, you know. Um, one, one more I, question. I have one more question. Chance. Yeah, the last one I haven't had a chance to type up yet, so I apologize. Uh, what do uh, Jewish people think of the New Testament? Do they think it's made up, or do they just dismiss it? Well, they obviously don't. They obviously don't believe it. They obviously will interpret the New Testament in light that Jesus was a um, rebel, a common rebel during his day. Maybe possibly a, a generous interpretation would be that he was a kind person who was misunderstand, but misunderstood and deceived both. If that's a kind, you'll have interpretations all over the map from a, an evil rebel to a misunderstood person. Uh, who is, but they won't, they won't accept that he's the Messiah, um, just like they didn't accept in his day that he was the Messiah. So you have lots of interpretations around that. So I've put some things in parentheses to add if there were multiple questions that looked the same. Um, but let's start with this one. In the Bible, God told his people to kill whole or entire people groups. How can that ever be okay? Yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the hardest ones to deal with. Let me just say this, because uh, I don't know if there's a, I, I don't know if I can give a really, really good answer to the whole thing. But in most of those instances, when you actually study the history of the Bible and what it's actually saying, it took generations of evil before God came to that conclusion. We're not talking a very quick decision. There's actually one passage, I forget where it is, where, where God says you're going to go here because the sins of this nation are not full yet. And the, the, the context of that is God is giving them generations of time to repent of that. And the, and, the, and the people groups that he said to do that to were sacrificing their children, were abusing their children. They were, we know from history, there were utter, awful, horrible abuses going on. And why the whole, f- that still seems like overkill in some ways, but, but the only way I can wrestle with that is also to look at understanding the fact that he didn't make those decisions 
I mean, even the decision to send Israel into exile was several hundred years of trying to help them come back to him and the society further degrading into really behaviors that if we really looked at them honestly, we would all be really disgusted with the fact that humanity would do that to one another. Other questions? Yes. Let's see. How do we reconcile things omitted uh, from the Bible? Examples like Tobit, uh, Gospel of Thomas, the longer ending mm-hmm. of Mark, and uh, Paracopid Ultra. That goes back to the, uh, the very strict guidelines for what made it into the Bible. Things like the Gospel of Thomas uh, very, very quickly became rejected by the majority of the, uh, of the church as not being on par with the rest, of the rest of the Gospels because of the influence of Greek thinking in it that did not reflect the actual thinking of Jesus and his time and his day. And with all of those documents, there were very, very clear things that were not consistent with the rest of Scripture, not consistent with the other Gospels, not consistent with what the eyewitnesses and the people knew. And in many cases, the authorship was uh, very much questioned as to whether it was somebody who was actually an eyewitness. See, everything that made it into the New Testament, other than Paul's writings, and Paul was universally accepted as an apostle, uh, were written with apostolic authority. That was one of the determinations for things that made it in. So things like the Gospel of Thomas, there's very, very serious questions, not just from the fact that it mixes in too much Greek philosophy that's completely inconsistent with Christianity, but it's also very, uh, they also rejected it based upon lack of proof of, of eyewitness authorship of the events. All right. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Does the Bible say that homosexuality can be changed to heterosexuality in all cases, or are some people simply born that way? Great question, and I'm going to ask you to come back on first or second Sunday in November. We're going to deal with that topic as a whole that Sunday, and we're going to deal with that very specific question in detail that Sunday uh, in a way that I think you will find is very... um, I hope you'll find it's very refreshing the way we're going to deal with that. Why are there so many versions of the Bible, NIV, ESV, etc.? Which one are we supposed to read? Great question. Uh, There are many different versions, partially because they're all translations, and there are different theories of translation, and there are different variations within those theories. Some theories say that we want to translate word for word. So, for instance, the New American Standard Bible is a word-for-word translation. What that results in when we try to translate it to English is for those of us who have had some Greek training and stuff, we can kind of see the underlying Greek uh, uh, grammar attempting to reflect through in English, but it also makes it a very hard read. It's an 11th grade level read. On the other hand, you've got uh, things like the NIV that are thought-for-thought translations. And that's a very legitimate way to do translations. And it ends up being more smooth, easier to read. Um, uh, And I think the NIV is somewhere around a fifth grade reading level. I think they have one version of it that's a third grade reading level out there. Um, I would actually recommend, uh, I've I've been through a lot of different translations. For me, when I'm doing uh, uh, a little more serious study, just because of the because I can see some of the Greek and Hebrew grammatical constructions in it, I read the NASB for a lot of 
of my, my more intense study, but on a regular basis, I'm actually spending a lot more time reading the English Standard Version, the ESV Version, because it's more of a thought-for-thought thought, uh, with a little bit of a... It's, it's kind of on the, the edge of word-for-word. Word. It's kind of mixing a little bit. There's kind of a continuum in there, and, and I find it to be a really easy read and a very, very good translation. The NIV is great. I, I haven't done enough study on the latest revision, which came out a year or so ago. I have done only enough study to know that among evangelical scholars there is some debate as to whether they remain faithful uh, to the text in a number of areas rather than becoming um, uh, a little bit too cultural uh, in some areas. So, uh, But the NIV historically has been a great translation. I used to read the NIV 84, uh, which is tra- the NIV's had several versions. The one I read was the 1984 version of the NIV. It was a great, great translation. So honestly, pick whichever you want. But be careful because there are there are paraphrases out there which are not translations at all. One of the popular paraphrases out there is the message. And that is what, so whenever you get into a paraphrase, you're talking about the author's attempt to write their own opinion of what the text is saying. Now, that can be really helpful for us because it's a little bit like reading a commentary at times. You get it, you get the opinion of the author, but where the author may not capture everything at times and may not capture everything accurately. So things like the Living Bible, the Message Bible are paraphrases, not translations. So I would really recommend for your devotionals picking more likely something like the NIV ESV just because of the ease of reading. I I would actually stay away from the King James. You have all sorts of arguments about that, but if you like like, um, uh, Shakespearean language, I suppose you can do that, but a lot of us, that's kind of a barrier to really understanding it. And there's there's this really kind of, sorry, insane argument out there that you see in the, on the internet on a regular basis that the King James is the only authorized version. That's a really funny, funny statement to me because you know who authorized it? King James. You know why he authorized it? Because he wanted to create a split between the Catholic Church and what he wanted in life. I mean, great motives for authorizing a translation, right? And uh, I mean, it's fine, but why why go back and force yourself to read Elizabethan English when you can read something that's uh, even based, a lot of the newer translations are actually based on a whole lot more archaeological finds and the texts, the actual texts that they translated from the King James are not as, are not as reliable as the ones that are using, being used for translation today. So I just think it's, you know, better. All right. I think one or two more questions we've got time for. Okay, great. This one actually uh, just came in, but I think it fits really well with what you were just talking about. It says, even in biblical languages, words that are vital to the meaning of the text are words that can be interpreted in multiple ways. Yeah. Uh, People have taken this and caused it to be divisive. How do we wrestle with those uh, multiple possible meanings? That is true because um, some of the language in Greek and Hebrew especially is is very pictorial. And it would be... So, well, uh, you could probably tell me more about this, but, but I remember walking into a hospital visit years ago. Uh, it was 1990s, and I walked into a hospital visit for Grant Moore and his wife. And uh, Grant was a, a French professor. And I walked in, and Grant is sitting here giggling in the corner. He's like 75. He's giggling in the corner. And, I, and, and I'm praying for his wife who's going into surgery in a few minutes. And I eventually look over at Grant because he's sitting there laughing so much. And I go, what, what are you... What are you laughing? What are you reading? Uh, you reading the comics? He goes, no, I'm reading the French dictionary. Well, what he loved about it is some of the words in, in, the, in, in French, just like in Hebrew, are very 
picture-oriented. So how do you capture that picture and that cultural context of the picture? I mean, okay, so there are also pictures from an ancient culture that did things differently than we do them today. And so that, that's really where a lot of it comes in. And so, but, but honestly, um, you don't have to worry about your ability to understand Scripture and not understanding those things. I mean, some of those things add a little fine-tuning to us. But really, if you read a couple different translations, you're going to get the picture of what's being said. I mean, the translations are really good. So you don't have to worry, like, unless I understand Greek or Hebrew, I can't understand the Bible. Baloney. You can read the Bible. You can understand the vast majority of the message without ever looking at a commentary or somebody trying to explain the Greek meaning behind stuff. One more question. Okay. Uh, Let's go with this one. Did God call us to worship a tame and sanitized nice Christ or live missionally as he actually lived? Good question. And uh, you could go back to a bunch of the Real Jesus series that we did for a year and find out very quickly our answer to that is God as Christ is often sanitized for us, uh, but the Real Jesus was much more um, controversial, much more real, much more in our faces, and much more kind in the process of being in our faces than any of us in sanitized uh, Christ America uh, would normally look at. And uh, we'll actually deal with the second half of that question next week when we deal with the cultural question uh, in that message next week. So I'm not going to go into more detail on that. Uh, we're going to close the service with some worship. And what I want to invite you to in this time is uh, if you're here and you do believe the Bible is authoritative, you believe in the reliability, you've already settled that issue in your mind, then I want you to just use this worship time as a time to just reflect on God and thank Him for that. And, uh, and as usual, we don't always go into how we want you to worship. A lot of times we stand up uh, in worship at the end. Uh, really, that's not a liturgical thing we do. For me, it's more of a let's break from what we've been doing for the last... 20 minutes, you know, type of thing. So feel free to respond however you want. If you're here and you're not convinced, uh, then I would just invite you to join in worship and voice your own prayer to God saying, would you show me whether this is true or not? Because I think all of us really, truly want to know what is really, truly true, right? Did I say true enough in there for you? Don't we? And so just voice your heart. And just invite him to show you. And then like I talked about earlier, when you feel like something is right and good, do it. You won't know if it's reliable unless you do it. And throughout this series, we're going to try to take a a little bit of a different look at the Bible, not just from the moral standpoint, but we're going to try to get out of those boxes that divide us, respect them when we need to respect them because the Bible has them there, but get out of those boxes and really focus on what does the Bible ask us to be. And I think that our conclusion to even the most difficult topics, whether we agree on the morality surrounding it or whatever, I think our conclusion has to be that we are going to be the kindest people on earth. That if we can do anything for the name of Christ, that we will do everything to destroy that mean Bible-thumping image in our friends' lives that they may have of God and the Bible and that we will be the kindest people regardless of what people think. So let's worship God and pray that He will do that in our lives. Thank you for listening. 
Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.